Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Good to be here with you. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And today we are going to do kind of a, a soft launch back into the, the series that we've been doing on the Gospel of Mark. So next week we'll be back into Mark, walking through it more step by step. But today I wanted to do something different, trying to keep in the spirit of a new year, often the kinds of things we're thinking about heading into a new year. And um, I'm going to open up here with a choose-your-own-adventure. Remember those books? I remember reading those when I was a kid. You'd get to the end of a chapter, and then you could choose what kind of adventure you wanted to go on by turning to the page of your choice. So that's where I want to start. And I want to give you two options. Here's the first one. If somebody said to you, hey, come with me on an adventure, and this adventure is going to proceed along the lines of success, even success with Jesus, it will lead to a really, truly desirable kind of life. And on our journey, you're going to start out small and weak but you're going to consistently become better and better and better, and you will grow, and you will learn, and you will achieve, and you will win. You're going to have to work hard. But if you do, and if you're good, then you are guaranteed to go from having nothing and, and then move to having some things, and then eventually you will have everything that you could ever want. If someone invited you onto that adventure, what would you say? It doesn't sound too bad to me, and in fact, I think it sounds eerily familiar. Here's another option. What if somebody said to you, hey, come with me on an adventure, and this adventure is going to proceed along the lines of failure? Even failures that happen while you walk with Jesus. And on our journey, you are going to become better, and then you will fail and become worse. And then you might climb back up again, but you will only fail again. And then you will grow, and you will shrink back. You will learn, and then you will forget everything that you learned. You will achieve, and you will win, and then you will fail, and you will lose even more and even worse. You're going to have to work hard at it, and when you do, regardless of whether you're good or bad, you will suffer from your mistakes and from the mistakes of others. There will be unexpected twists and turns and unforeseen challenges, and this adventure will look like one large arduous progression of ups and downs and wins and losses. The timeline of your life from beginning to end will look like a jagged mountain range if you could line graph it, up and down, never producing everything that you want. Sickness will plague your body. Doubt will plague your spiritual life. Immorality will hurt your family and your church, and even you. 
This will be one simple progression from low to high, back to low, then lower, then lower than you ever thought it could be, then up again and back down and on we go. We might call it the downward mobility upward track. When somebody invited you onto that adventure, what would you say? The first one is the path of upward mobility. And the graph would show a consistent, steady, upward curve of life. Continuous, consistent growth, always getting better. The other one is downward mobility upward. And it's jagged and rough. Which one would you choose? Well, yeah, I think we're, we're good Americans. Not only does every one of us opt for the first adventure, I think most of us believe we're actually living it. Deep down in our core, that is the one we want. Steady, consistent progress. Always, always, always moving up. We sometimes teach our children that if they do things the right way, that they can and they will navigate around pain and loss. And this is the assumed goal of human life, to minimize pain and loss, to lessen your suffering as much as possible. We just assume it. That's our goal. If you don't go to college, you're going to have a hard time finding a good job, mom and dad say. And what the kid hears is, first and foremost, be afraid of failure and believe that you can avoid it. And if you do go to college, you will have an easier time finding a good job. And when you have a good job, then you will be free from suffering. You might go ahead and ask the rising generation how that wisdom is working out. And yet, faced with the utter stupidity of that thinking, we still desperately teach our kids that if they can avoid the pain, things will be better. That failing feeling of loss, if they just remember to Fill in this blank with whatever you want. We all have a different way to fill in that blank. If you study hard, you will certainly be successful. If you're honest and kind, you will certainly be accepted in your community. If you choose a spouse carefully, you will certainly enjoy a rich and rewarding life of upward mobility, consistent progress toward perfection and joy. This is our goal. But there is this one recalcitrant fact that kind of gnaws at the back of our skulls like an intellectual hangnail. It's there. You can't avoid it. It causes pain. You have to pay attention to it. And that is the fact that literally nobody's life is consistently upwardly mobile. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg's is. I don't know. It kind of looks like that from what I see on Facebook. Other than him, anybody else in my real life that I've ever engaged with does not have that story to tell. Although some want me very desperately, they want me to believe that's the story. Our great literature and our culture and our stories that we tell, they, they reflect this 
All throughout time, this truth, Cinderella, she does not rise in glory until she first suffers humiliation and rejection and loss. Luke must fail to defeat Vader. He has to get his hand chopped off and suffer great loss and crippling confusion before he can rise in courage. Frodo, he can't defeat Lord Sauron until his own close fellowship of friends is totally shattered. His colleagues lose their lives. His physical being becomes crippled and starving. His closest relationships get severed until he's almost totally, completely lost there at the edge of the lava on Mount Doom. This all happens before the big rise. Jacob must fail morally. Conning Esau out of his birthright like a low-life swindler. And then he falls even lower, doubting and fighting with God until he receives a permanent, lifelong wound. That all happens before he can become Israel, the great patriarch. The suffering, beating, and rejection and ultimate death of Jesus must be suffered first before Christianity can form. A good scholar and teacher named Richard Rohr, he suggests that the soul has many secrets only to be revealed to those who want to know them. They are never forced upon us. One of the best kept secrets, he writes, and yet one hidden in plain sight, is that the way up is the way down. Or if you prefer, the way down is the way up. But we do not want that kind of adventure most days. If the path that we are on feels like it might be moving toward failure, we balk and we squirm and we get stressed and we panic, especially after having put so much money and so much time and so much effort into going up. This is surely the first and primary reason why so many people never get to the fullness of their own lives, Roar writes. The supposed achievements of the first half of life must fall apart and they must show themselves to be wanting in some way or we will not move further. Why would we? We like to believe what we were told early on. We choose adventure number one. We like to believe that the primary goal in this life is to avoid failure, and even crazier, that we can avoid failure. Indeed, that failure itself is absolutely not an integral part of life with God. It just can't be. People who do things poorly are not godly. They're not Christian. But people who do things well are godly good Christian. And since I want to be a good Christian, and I want to be known as one who is such, then by default, I am just necessarily doing things correctly, aren't I? I can't be failing. I'm upwardly mobile. I'm always growing. I'm always progressing. I'm always getting better and better. 
Yes, I will acknowledge the fact that I'm not perfect or I am a sinner, but I do that not because I deeply believe it. That's the good doctrine that good Christians report. And so I'll say that. But I'm one of God's people, and God's people don't lose, and they don't sin, and they don't forget, and they don't do that kind of stuff. Failure is just not an option. I like to think of my life history in terms of Facebook history, or whatever I might include on a resume. It's one steady chronology of positives and achievements. The happy moments, the awards, the degrees, that's my life. It's been one steady up curve. Thinking this way allows me to do several things. By staying in this mindset, I can avoid the stinging pain that comes with admitting failure. Just move on. Don't think about it. And there's nothing to learn from it because it isn't even real. There's no failure here, no worries, no problem. It's all good. We're good. Everything's good. It allows me to remain judgmental toward others who just can't seem to be quite as awesome or qualified or correct or as accomplished as me. And it allows me to stay on the course of life that I know best, that was given to me in grade school, and that surrounds me every single day in this world. We're good. Everything's good. Things will be just fine. But the Bible has always had something very different to say about failure, something very direct to tell us about failure and about perfection. And so to begin, I want to look at the scriptures here, and I want to look at several different pieces of them. But to start out, we have to acknowledge that you cannot ever, ever totally avoid sinfulness or mistakes or failure. For all have sinned, Paul tells us in Romans 5, everybody has sinned, we all fall short. And I know that we like to interpret that, I prefer to interpret that as we all sinned back then before we found Jesus and now things are good. But I think that Paul's writing and the teaching of the New Testament and our own experience in life would tell us, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm consistently sinful, not that it just happened back in my pre-Jesus days. I would suggest that you know deep down that we all continue to sin throughout the duration of our lives. Now, I know there's some hesitation forming right now. Notice, I am not at all suggesting that the scriptures teach us to gravitate towards sin or to think that it's no big deal uh, because grace. I'm only suggesting that we might start off this new year with a healthy dose of honesty. The endless news cycles that we watch on TV, they are fueled with consistent catastrophic levels of failure over and over. And all of that suffering and that sin out there really helps me to say things like, whew, I'm not like that. Thank goodness. I am not like those people. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not failing. Do you remember Jesus' story about the religious elite 
and the tax collector, the government worker, they both go up to the temple to pray. And the respectable and religious good guy, he takes the prayer platform first, okay? And he steps up to the platform and he straightens out his tie. He says, God, I thank you so much. Thank you that I am not like those drug addicts on 82nd Avenue or those lazy bums who constantly mooch off the system. Oh, man, I'm not like that. Thank you. And I'm not like those sexual deviants with their parades and their wedding cake controversies. Thank you so much that I am better, so much better than that. You know, I'm joking a little bit there. That's a modern paraphrase. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortionists and unrighteous people and adulterers, or even this tax collector sitting here next to me. Not me, no, sir. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything that I have. I don't fail, and I'm thankful to you, God, for making me that way. So good. Then the tax collector, he stands far away. His arms aren't raised in pride. Instead, he's beating his chest. And he just says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner that I am, the failure that I am. It was the tax collector who wasn't afraid to say, I have dropped the ball here. And with that tax collector, within his honest reflection of where he was really at, there was Jesus saying, you are justified. You have humbled yourself. You have gone low. And it is men and women like you who will be exalted. That's encouraging. Maybe you could consider the famous parable of the prodigal son. We have the one character who has walked the upward mobility course of perfected righteousness throughout his life. I mean, he has dialed it in. He's got it going on. At least it appears that he has. He is the one who had done it all correctly. And yet he ends up being the one who's actually totally wrong. It's the one who has failed and faltered and flopped that becomes God's beloved. The humiliating reality is that we are all prone to consistent failure prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And Jesus teaches us that there are two groups in this world who are particularly skilled at trying to deny or avoid this truth. These two groups are those who love money and those who love religious or theological rules. These two groups cannot accept failure in their lives or in other people. They can't see failure in themselves at all. They devise very nice-looking ways to pretend that they do not, in fact, fail. And I have to admit that I've lived far too much of my life like that. They have their salvation plan all worked out, all their beliefs are just as they should be. Everything is right in order. And they take two different ways of going up. 
One is acquiring wealth and status. As long as I'm always doing that, I'm moving up well. The other is acquiring the puffed pride of religious rule following, and neither can stomach the idea of going down. The whole notion of the way up is the way, or the way down is the way up, it just doesn't fit within our Western sensibilities. And I want to say this morning that it's killing us in our own personal lives, our family lives, and I think it's killing us in the life of our church communities. A fake sense of perfection in an unreasonable obsession with achieving that perfection ends up crippling our real spiritual maturity. It cripples our maturity with one another and with Christ. Perfect becomes the enemy of good. So we've been in Mark's gospel, and we've been walking very slowly. Right now I want to back up broadly and look at the first eight chapters. Don't worry, we're not going to read all the way through it. But there is a... There is a thematic thread, a motif that weaves through those chapters. We might call it the dull disciple motif. And I want to just go uh, anecdote by anecdote showing you uh, a, a picture of disciples of Jesus. That's who we are, disciples of Jesus, and looking at how they live as they walk with him and how Jesus responds to them. There is not going to be a lot of upward mobility here. There is nothing that resembles perfect at all. But there is a ton of goodness, okay? A ton of goodness. So we start this way. Jesus hits the scene, and he, in short order, realizes that he needs some help. He needs some apostles. So he appoints the 12, and we remember how Peter sort of takes this emphasis place for us. Uh, Mark seems to want us to, to say, you know, pay attention closely to this guy. A ministry of miracle working and preaching is launched, and it's exciting. Mark tells story after story about the challenges and the crazy crowds that are following them and a lot of intense things going on, hot pursuits, narrow escapes. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, which is, that's where we'll pick it up next week, he starts to speak in parables. And he tells this cryptic story about a farmer who sows a bunch of seed in various places. And then what happens to that seed? But the disciples, the apostles, they're, they're kind of like, what? What are you talking about, man? And right there, this is a fail. It's a significant fail on their behalf. By now, Mark is suggesting, if these guys were on that upward mobility path, that human experience growth curve, they would not be saying that Jesus is confusing them. They would be understanding him more and more. They wouldn't be saying, dude, we don't get it. Notice that Jesus himself speaks this way in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, whoever has ears to hear, you better listen up. Now, he's talking just to the disciples at this point. He says, pay attention, friends. I've given the secret of the kingdom of God to you. But to everyone outside, everything is in parables. It's the outsiders who have a reason to fail to understand. You should be successful in understanding. 
No doubt the disciples already felt that that was true. I think they felt negatively about that. They had to acknowledge and embrace their own failure. And Jesus didn't just, uh, you know, swoop in with this sort of smiley face participation award. He calls failure, failure. It's okay, guys. He doesn't say, don't have any uh, uh, negative feelings about this. Let's just pretend your failure is actually a success, you know. We, it's a fun life. It's not a success. You really are failing right now. But then notice what happens. Don't you understand this parable? How are you going to understand any parable? Why don't you dummies get out of here? I need Christians who don't fail. I need people who actually get it. There's just no way that I could bring the truth of the gospel to this world through people who don't perfectly and fully understand everything. Get out of my way. Does he say that? No, not at all he doesn't say that. He sits with them patiently and he breaks it down for them. And in that moment, in their descent of failing, uh, it, it precedes the moment of great growth they must actually go down before they can come up. Mark is surely drawing upon a theme that is throughout all of the Bible. Joseph goes down into the pit before he can be raised up. Israel goes down into bondage in Egypt before it can be raised up. The disciples failing go down over and over again to be raised up, and we'll see where Peter lands. Jesus himself fails to change the hearts and the minds of the Jews, and he goes down into the grave only to be raised up in resurrection glory for all of eternity. It's thematic all through the Bible. You could probably think of another 20 stories just like him. Well, Jesus continues on, parable after parable. We get to Mark 4, 33, and it says, with many parables like these, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately, he explained to his own disciples. He cared for them. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their sin. He knew their unbelief or their forgetfulness, and he met them there. He expected them to fail. He wasn't shocked. <gasps> How could you? He expected it. It was part of life. And he always had an outstretched hand welcoming them to not give up. That seems to be the key. Don't give up. Persevere with the Savior. Mark chapter 4 gives this picture of dull disciples. They're not really getting it. They seem to be progressing in some ways, though. And just when you're sort of affirm that, all right, I think they learned their lesson, we're back on the upward track, that looks good, then you get to the end of the chapter. A big storm kicks up, and they're out on the water, they're doing a little boating, and the water, the waves start crashing, the wind is howling. Now these guys have witnessed with their own eyes, this man Jesus demonstrate divine power. Crazy. They've watched him do miracles, okay? And, and here comes the, the storm, and they say, oh no! Where are we going to get any help around here? Oh, who's going to have the power to help us? Goodness gracious, what are we going to do? 
They look over at Jesus, you know, he's kind of calm. He's just chilling. Teacher, don't you care that we're, we're about to die here? Jesus simply stands up, waves crashing, wind howling, and he yells. He yells at the wind and the sea. Just yells at it. Now, a little side note, this reminds me of my daughter Annabelle. When she was uh, just an infant, she's got about five words in her entire lexicon. She'd be sitting there strapped into her little car seat, we'd turn the corner, and the sun would be shining brightly. And it would come right on her face, right in her hot sun, you know, and she would just sit there and flailing her arms, no sun, no sun, and she'd be rebuking the sun. I guess she didn't have any divine authority because it seemed to continue shining. <laughs> Unlike Jesus, right? So he says, be quiet, wind. Calm down, seas, and immediately everything calms down. And then Jesus, he says, why are you guys so cowardly? You know, they're sitting there and they say, grief, we really failed. We have totally dropped the ball yet again. Why are you so cowardly? Then he doubles down. He says, do you still have such little faith? Do you not have faith? Jesus acknowledges their fail. He didn't protect them from the fail. He didn't prevent it from happening like a good helicopter parent would have. He did not take them on the easy route to ensure that their egos and their self-esteem would stay intact and robust. No, he led them straight into a certain failure, knowing that they would fail, and from this low point rises a great and beautiful goodness. Verse 41 says, they were overwhelmed with fear, and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Their faith was not only strengthened, but widened. All that they had seen him do, now they saw him do more. And they doubted him, and they didn't believe in him, and yet <gasps> they were proven wrong. And can you imagine how that solidified something inside them? It's stronger. It's more comprehensive. Well, they continue on in ministry together, and Jesus eventually sends them out two by two, the Bible says. Now, this is good. We're on the upward mobility. We've got our own responsibility. He sends them out without supervision. He gives them authority to cast out demons. And they're doing well. Chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, they tell us that they preached well. They cast out all kinds of demons. They anointed people with oil and healed sicknesses. And then at the end of chapter 6, they totally fail again. This is that famous scene where Jesus and the disciples find need to feed a huge crowd of people, 5,000 adult males, so easily 10,000 plus people are awfully hungry. And they do this miracle with just a tiny amount of food. This miraculous thing happens. Jesus works a miracle through them and with them. But it all starts with the disciples' fear and unbelief. Oh no, where are we gonna get somebody where are we possibly going to find somebody with the power or the resources to feed these people? This is crazy. From that failure to trust Jesus, they go low. And this time, perhaps lower than ever before. 
Because notice what Mark says, quote, they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. I thought we were moving along here, guys. Come on. I thought you were on that upward, you're getting better and better and better. Now he's used language. This language in the Bible is severe language. Their hearts were hardened. That sounds a lot like the Pharaoh, a total fail. Are the disciples really becoming hard-hearted? Apparently, Mark wants us to know that they are truly, deeply missing the target. They're missing the point. And yet, they continue following. They persevere with Jesus. They don't give up. We know that their failure doesn't shatter them because they stay the course. They keep on following Christ. And there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus was very direct with them, very truthful, very kind, and very gracious. I think he was all of those. I think we can be that way. Several teachings, several parables later, we yet again come to the same place where Jesus says to them, this is in Mark 7, 18, he says, are you so foolish? Don't you yet understand? He boldly rebukes them. He challenges them to recognize their failure, to admit it like the tax collector who was beating his chest next to the Pharisee. And this is highly instructive for you and me for how we think of ourselves and how we think of one another. There is Jesus always saying to us in that failure, I am with you. You are with me. We are together. We were made to help one another. I will never, ever leave you. I know that you have failed and will. I'm here to help you, not to hurt you not to condemn you, not to make you feel awful about your failure to the point where you're even terrified to admit it. Just the opposite. In the same way that God led me into the wilderness for a long time of pain and suffering, I too will lead all Christians headlong into places of great pain and great suffering. Places that you are not equipped for, Ministries that you cannot do well. Goals you don't have the capacity to achieve. And when you fail, when you collapse, and when you feel like all is now lost, that your upward mobility chance at the good life is forever over, I will show you that you are not the worst, and I will pick you up, and I will teach you to rise with me. Jesus, our brother, followed that path, and he invites us to follow it with him. This dull disciple motif rolls through the first whole half of Mark, and it comes to a very curious engagement in chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples are yet again faced with a very large crowd, a group of people who have been camping out for about three days in a row with them. You know, the igloo coolers are out of sandwiches. Soda pops and the brewskis are gone. And after all of this time with Jesus, they've watched him do all of the things that he's done. They look at their new predicament and they say, oh no, where in the world are we going to find 
the resources, somebody with the power and resources to help feed this whole crowd. What are we going to do? What in the world, Jesus says. Don't you have eyes and ears? <laughs> Can't you see and hear me? Where did all the food come from before? And then they give the good, fail-safe church answer. They're like, uh, it came from Jesus? He's like, yeah, it came from me. And after some conversation, the disciples rise up. They rise up from that low point of failing and unbelief. And for the first time in Mark's gospel, they say, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. This is a huge win. And it comes only after a significant, huge fail, doesn't it? That's very interesting. Not long after that, the special disciple, Peter, he makes the biggest one of all. It's the, I mean, we could keep going here, but this is a good one. It's really bad. Jesus explains that he himself, the strong Messiah, is going to be rejected by those religious elite. He is going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and they will kill him. And Peter takes Jesus aside and he challenges him. The text says that Peter rebuked Jesus, essentially forcefully calling Jesus to admit that he was wrong and to change his ways. That's what Peter tries to do with Jesus. That's a, that's a significant fail. <laughs> that's bad. You have quite a posture when that's how you approach God himself in the flesh. So, Jesus turns to him, and he calls him the worst possible thing a first century Jew could hear. He says, you are Satan right now. I think that was crippling for Peter. I, I would love to know, I wouldn't want to feel, but I'd love to know exactly what his emotional state was hearing that from his beloved Jesus. He loved Jesus. He said what he did out of love for Jesus, but he was dead wrong. Jesus calls him Satan. Why? Because even after all of this time of walking with Jesus, Peter nevertheless totally drops the ball. He tries to see his own will done rather than seeing God's will done. And Jesus, again, is not interested in calling this failure something nice, nor is he interested in making Peter feel good about it, as though Peter's evil is actually okay if you look at it from the right philosophical perspective. A spade is not a diamond, it's just a spade. A fail is not a success, it's just a fail. And yet, to the human being trying to follow Jesus, failing is like bad weather. You don't want it to happen, but it just does. All continue to sin. Everybody continues to fall short. We all fall constantly. We are not perfect. But we can be good. And St. Peter, he was good. He was very good. Some of you know that he will go on to fail even worse. He will deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. He'll abandon Jesus, so Jesus has to go to the cross alone. But through that experience, as Peter goes down into loss and traumatic failure, Jesus raises him back up 
He wipes the tears away, and he says, son, you are going to become the foundation of my beloved church. Our greatest church father, St. Peter, was a man who blundered and stumbled and failed many, many times during his life with Jesus. This is the man that Jesus chose to become a foundational and grounding example to us as an example of the Christian, the Christian life. Do you think he might have chosen Peter for a reason? I do. And I look at Peter's life and I find intense hope. And it's not the kind of hope that comes from me looking at Peter and saying, oh, good grief, dude. Thank goodness I'm not like Peter. It's because I look at Peter and I said, wow, I am just like him. How does this desire for perfection, pursuing the illusion that you should not fail or that you do not fail, how does this affect your life? I've been thinking about this a lot, not just preparing for a sermon, but all through 2016. I've been trying to think about failure and loss in a way that is very different than how I was taught to early on. How does it affect you? Does it strain your marriage? Thinking that we are above errors leaves us very argumentative and very defensive. There's just no way that I'm wrong. Many of us are skilled at defending our positions because the notion that we are wrong is utterly incomprehensible. It's inconceivable. And marriages with this happening quickly devolve into nothing more than partnerships. Even cordial partnerships oriented on accomplishing tasks like child rearing or saving for retirement, building things, whatever it would be. Does it create personal stress and a double or a hidden life inside of you that you're ashamed of? When failure is not an option, it becomes impossible to confess sin. Sin must be ignored or reasoned away. It's not my fault. The serpent made me do it. The woman made me do it. Satan made me do it. That dark spade is actually a happy diamond because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know? I didn't fail. I can't fail. I'm a good Christian. But deep inside, I mean, you can roll that way for a while, but deep inside, you're coming undone. Your church or workplace persona is nothing like your private one. You feel trapped in life, and you feel like you're dishonest, even around your closest people. And you're not receiving the life-giving forgiveness of Jesus. Does it ravage your life within the Christian community? Obsessing on this false notion that I am upwardly mobile, always better, well-accomplished, all-knowing, even perfect. I cannot help but to lovingly, lovingly notice how deeply flawed all of these brothers and sisters are. And I'm disappointed, and I'm disconnected, and I'm disapproving 
Nothing is right. God, thank you that I am not like these people. I cannot handle imperfection in myself or in others. Men and women, I believe that the scriptures teach us to embrace failure as a part of the Christian life and to learn to experience the wounds of life not alone, not in secret, but with Jesus and with one another as we live like Jesus toward one another. In the same exact way that we see him living with his disciples in the first century, we live with each other, his disciples, in Portland 2017. My prayer and my vision for this church is that we would each, every single one of us in this room, that we would each work hard, diligently to create a culture here where failure is expected, where it is understood rightly, where on one hand, it's not minimized, it's not painted in sort of a fake triumphal optimism, nor, on the other hand, is it seen as something worth condemning and shaming and despising and hating. Instead, when we fail, we see ourselves, we see our own stories in the same exact stories of the great men and women of God who have gone before us. Their stories recorded all throughout the scriptures, the whole Bible. We realize that this life is not about anxiously protecting ourselves from the pains of real failure or falsely believing that we can navigate around it, but instead, it's about entering into those wounds with Jesus and rising ultimately with his help on the wings of his forgiveness. If there is such a thing as human perfection, Roar, uh, Roar says, if there is such a thing as human perfection, it seems to emerge precisely from how we handle the imperfection that is everywhere, especially our own. What a clever place for God to hide holiness so that only the humble and the earnest will find it. A perfect person ends up being one who can consciously forgive and include imperfection rather than one who thinks he or she is totally above and beyond imperfection. It becomes sort of obvious once you say it out loud. In fact, I would say that the demand for the perfect is the greatest enemy of the good. Perfection is a mathematical or a divine concept, but goodness, well, that's a beautiful human concept, and it includes us all. Let's pray. Jesus, we are sinners, and we ask that you would have mercy on us. With that tax collector, we... We beat our chest, but we regret to say that oftentimes we beat our chest only in private, away from you, inflicting even further.
further harm upon ourselves as we condemn ourselves and think lowly of ourselves and think that because we've failed, we've somehow stepped outside of the way human beings operate right now. But we see throughout every story of the Bible this theme. We see in these first eight chapters of Mark this theme, and these men were the closest to you. What a great, great friend you were. <laughs> to just think of how kind and patient you were with these men. And I do. I read the stories of the disciples, and my knee-jerk reaction is to say, geez, what's wrong with those guys? And then as I think about it, and you teach me further, Jesus, through your word, you show me, those guys are exactly like me. I'm in that same exact boat. And I am so thankful that you forgive me and all of the men and the women in this room. I ask that you would help us this year as we step into 2017. And we continue to minister here at CB and mostly in our neighborhoods and in our friendships and workplaces. Help us to become people who can rightly understand failure, who can handle imperfection in ourselves and in the lives of others in the same way that you did, which is by calling it what it is in the most loving and patient and kind way, and that we would be always helping to restore one another to your likeness. We are so thankful for you, our good friend, our brother, our creator, our God. We love you and we trust you. Amen.